Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds and today I'm talking with Caitlin Scheiss, the author of The Ballot and the Bible. Uh, you might know Caitlin from her appearances on the Holy Post podcast. This is not that podcast. Uh, a little more famous, actually, than than this one is. Uh, but she's agreed to join us today to talk about her new book. Caitlin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. Yeah, we're really glad to have you on. And uh, let's just start with this. Give me your elevator pitch for this book. What's it about? Why should people read it? Yeah, so this book is most simply a book about how we read the Bible, um, specifically how we read the Bible in our political contexts. But my desire in writing it was not just to say, okay, let's just get in the weeds. Like, you know, what does this passage about the Jubilee say to our economic life? Or does this passage from Psalms have anything to say about abortion policy? I, I have found in the last few years of working with a lot of churches, campus ministries, Christian colleges, that when you say we're having a political conversation, people come with walls up, they come ready to fight. There's a pretty high temperature initially in that conversation. And so I thought, what if we instead kind of pumped the brakes a little bit and looked at some examples in history in which scripture has been used, especially American history? I'm thinking about the American political context. Some examples in American history where scripture was used in ways that we might find commendable or in ways that we might be quite critical of and have examples that feel both connected to us if we're thinking about the American political context and yet distant enough from us that maybe we can lower the temperature a little bit. Maybe we can learn something about a context, about an, an issue or a biblical interpretation question that's still very relevant to us, but without immediately jumping to current political questions to do it. We'll hopefully get there. That's a part of, I think, growing together and being discipled well in our current world is thinking about current political issues. But maybe we could do it more faithfully and with a little lower temperature if we started with some historical examples and kind of worked our way up to what that means in our contemporary context. Mm -hmm. So in your book, what historical examples do you talk about? Obviously, the issue of slavery in the 1800s uh, and before is a big one. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we can talk about all, all of these social issues. I, I kind of think like slavery is the one where it's like almost all Christians in the in the United States are willing to say, we got that one wrong. Historically, yeah, so. Christianity got that one wrong. Um, but there are so many other issues that move into modern times, mm -hmm. um, even ones that are related to slavery. You say, well, we, we, we got slavery wrong, but what about all these issues of uh, racial reconciliation and justice and equity, you know, equity and all of these things? We tend to I think not not to think about um, how scripture applies in the modern time uh, in a way that is nuanced, mm -hmm. in a way that says, you know, it, it's just like, well, that's what that's what scripture says. So there's no there's not even any argument about it. And we were so obvious, you know, our ancestors were so obviously wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, that one's so obviously, obviously wrong. We can't look at our own issues today to say are we, you know, it, are, are we wrong? Yeah. So how do we even begin to have this conversation when it begins with sort of like, well, that's what the Bible says. So it's what we have to do. Right, right. So one of the first kind of guiding things that I went into this book with was, and a lot of people have asked questions along the way of saying, well, are you going to cover this issue or this, you know, current question politically? And most people will be disappointed if they're looking for a particular issue that's kind of hashed out or covered in the book. Because what I really started as like a guiding principle was 
we need to take a step back before we jump to, okay, what does the Bible say about X political issue? Let's look up in my concordance. What are all the verses that talk about this thing? Let's take a step back and say, do we have a good political theology? Do we have a theology of what government is, what authority is, what good human communities look like, what leads to great flourishing for especially the most vulnerable people and what doesn't? And are there principles in scripture? Is there a story in scripture that can help us in those much broader political questions? And so every chapter of the book, even though it does deal in some sense with specifics, like the question of slavery or the question of the American revolution and creation of a new country, and or even, you know, kind of uh, economic questions in the like mid to later 20th century, I tried to really focus on, well, what was at the kind of heart of this question? Like what was happening in terms of how we use scripture to think about what government is and what we are supposed to do and what are our obligations? And so I think that's part of it is stepping back and saying, okay, what what political theology do we have and how does scripture help us think about that broader question? I think the other thing is, and this is kind of a heartbeat throughout the book as well, is saying we always have to be both discerning what scripture says and discerning what context we are in now and what is demanded of us now. And I hate to break it to people who might be excited to have a book that's like, here's the answer, like here's the hermeneutical principles, here's the rules that you can follow. Um, Instead, I think what I hope gets communicated is we both have to have good hermeneutical principles. We do need to exegete scripture well. And there are some kind of obvious failures we've had in the past. We have often had this problem of plucking uh, promises to Israel or to the church and applying them to America. Well, that's sort of a hermeneutical question. Like we've misunderstood how to do this well. Um, And yet there's this other question that says like, what does God demand of us now? That's a much trickier, more difficult question. Um, I give the example at the end of the book of, of Hulda, a prophet who, when Josiah the king discovers the word of the Lord, discovers the law and says, who can interpret this? They go and find Hulda and Hulda interprets it. Hulda does not just read the law and say, okay, well, it says if we do these bad things, these consequences will come. No, she says these consequences are coming, which required both the interpretation of the law and the interpretation of the context that she was in. And so I hope that kind of tangible historical examples can help us have a greater imagination and greater practice for, okay, in our own context, just saying there's a Bible verse that settles it is really skipping some significant parts of the process and doesn't really take seriously the kind of thing scripture is. People might say, I have such respect for scripture, or I think of it as authoritative. I have a high view of scripture, but you're not really treating scripture like the thing it is as it was given to the church, the people of God, if you think it's a rule book that just gives you instructions on exactly what you should do in every circumstance. We have long Christian history that tells us this is handed down to us as this story that we do have. It has authority over us. Absolutely. But the work of applying it to our lives, especially our political context of space in which we're so susceptible to the biases of our own period and time and the things that really we have incentives for, like the things we want, it will be really hard and it will require a lot more work of of reading our own context, which is why I felt like the history was important to say, it's obvious when you look in history, oh, their context was obviously shaping their interpretation. Hopefully by learning that though, you can start to discern in your own place. Well, that if that was true of them, it must be true of me. And if I don't think it's true of me, then I'm just unaware of what is shaping me and how can I be more aware of it? Yeah, because I, I think what I end up seeing is that you have a position that's conservative, you have a position that's liberal, you have Christians on both sides, and both sides pull out their respective verses on mm-hmm. 
you know, on either side. And, you know, one group argues it with this set of scripture that seems to say this. One group argues it with this set of scripture that seems to say this. And, um, you know, I, I don't, we don't need to get into which side is doing the better exegetical work, but I feel like the way in which the argument begins is just presented as this is what scripture says, do it instead of just realizing that like, Hey, if we're having these two parallel conversations, how do these, how do these verses, how do these stories that we're interacting with, how do they come together? Do they, do they work together in any way? Um, do, do they apply in different contexts or circumstances? Were they around at different times? You know, what is, is one, one set of um, things given to an oppressed people and another one given to an empowered people? How does that work? And I, we're just, we're just missing so much nuance. We're, we're shouting out these verses and just saying, this is what it is. How do we get to the point where we can have a conversation with without it just immediately being shut down by well you know throwing throwing the bible down and saying here you go how do we how do we begin to have those sort of nuanced conversations yeah yeah um it's funny uh stanley Hauerwas, who is you know really important theologian wrote a lot about christian ethics um he has a book called unleashing the scriptures that's kind of his book about america and america use of scripture and he starts the book with a very characteristically provocative claim he likes saying sort of like you know, provocative things that that shock or offend people. And he starts the book with the claim that we need to take the Bible out of the hands of American Christians because they have just abused it. They don't know how to use it. They they do what you just described. Like they get in a political conversation and they just pit Bible verse against Bible verse. And it's so ingrained in us. We inherit these habits um, across generations. And so we just take it out of their hands. They They cannot be trusted to use it well. And as much as I respect him and I loved that book, I think what I would say instead is not that it needs to be taken out of the hands of American Christians, but that we need to open it and read it. Um, too often our use of scripture has really been with it closed, like holding it like a weapon to kind of whack someone with instead of, or just kind of going for the verses that you're most familiar with. So you don't even have to open it. There's nothing that you expect to surprise you or confront you. You already know what's in that. And it already just so happens to support everything that you think politically. Um, and so I think one of the things that we need to do is read the Bible more together. Really, one of the goals of this book was, and, and I have a, a study guide that Brazos has made um, to have groups go through the book together. And really, one of the goals of that study guide is both to say, okay, hopefully you read about some of this history. It provokes some questions. It prompts conversation. But the study guide also, at the end of every chapter, has, okay, I picked a passage. Maybe it's the passage that was central to that chapter. Maybe it's just another passage that's relevant that I think is important for political theology. Spend some time reading that passage together and figuring out, okay, so based on this history, we've learned these are the temptations. <laughs> like These are the tendencies of our history we inherit. Do we see that in this passage? So an early chapter, for example, is on Romans 13 and the Revolutionary War context, which I just think is funny because people today pit that verse so often. I it was like kind of stunning how um, during Black Lives Matter protests in 2020, it was like the favorite verse of people saying, that's terrible. Obey the government. Don't protest. That's bad. But then a di totally different group of people loved that passage when it came to churches that were not obeying COVID-19 restrictions. It was like, no, 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 obey the government. They gave you these restrictions. You have to follow them. So neither of those are consistent uses of that passage because you're selective and what you're applying it to. 
But I especially thought it was funny because some of the folks that are pretty patriotic that apply Romans 13 to mean America is great, obey America, you know, chosen nation, that kind of stuff, it all fits together, would not have loved the way Romans 13 was used during the Revolutionary War, where it was most often quoted by loyalist priests saying, no, you don't get to revolt. You don't get to start a new country. You obey the government. And actually, based in First Peter, you obey the king. And so that's what's important. Um, and so... It's. I just think it's important to look at that history and go, okay, so if that's true, if these kind of dynamics were at play, what does that mean for my own interpretation? Now I go back and I read Romans 13 again and I say, well, what images and feelings come to mind when I read this passage? And are they are they really based in my own formation, in my own country, in my own context? And how can I begin to identify that and move forward? Um, and I think the other part of this whole thing, as you've described, I think we're approaching a season where this will happen all the time, right? Like the election starts, candidates give speeches, it makes its way on social media, and Christians love doing this. And sometimes it's appropriate. Like, I'm not against us uh, using the Bible. I think it's really, really good. They'll pull out verses. They'll be like, okay, this candidate said this. Well, this verse, you know, contradicts that. Or this candidate quoted this verse and no, that was wrong because this other thing. We get into that space, I think, especially in an election year. And so another part of this, which is like part of this whole, I just think we need to read the Bible more and together and more widely across the whole canon, is that this is work that has to happen now, like prior to an election year. It would even be better if it happened earlier than this. Um, we love the like, oh, it's an election year. Great. Let's talk about it now. It's like the trendy thing. We'll get some people to come to a Wednesday night small group or people will show up to hear the sermon. and you've already lost the game if you're a month or two out of the election and you're like, let's have a conversation about the Bible and politics. This needs to be, we spent six months reading Isaiah. And after six months of reading Isaiah, what did we really learn about our political life? Um, that's longer work. That's harder work that requires a lot more foresight. And I think the biggest problem for a lot of American evangelical churches is it requires us to think that politics is not this thing we do every four years for a day when we vote. But politics is a part of the life that we live in our communities all the time. And so it's not just relevant right before you do this supposedly one political thing you do every four years, hopefully every two years or even more frequently. But it actually is something that's relevant all of the time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that and this is true just outside of American evangelicalism, just America in general has really reduced politics to being and this is this is in your book. It's 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 the ballot and the Bible. We've mm -hmm. reduced the act of politics to being the ballot. And yep. saying, well, you know, your vote counts. Um, but it really, you know, politics is a way of being in the world, specifically within the community that you live in, whether that's yeah. you know, locally, nationally, and you have varying levels of influence to that. And the ballot is definitely a part of that. Um, but you you influence your your political system in terms of the, the polis, the city. Yeah. Uh, and in uh, a lot of other ways. And when you reduce the church to the way they interact in politics, to being the way they vote, how they put forth a political candidate, you miss out on the church engaging in politics in the way that's like transforming the city yeah. and saying yeah. that, you know, we're going to elect someone to do this rather than um, grassroots ourselves as that church community um engage in the work of transforming the community ourselves and and because you get that 
that reduction uh, into a single candidate, if it's if it's the president or you know senators, representatives, and so on. But it, I think it really tends to be even as far up as just national politics is really yeah. all that anyone pays attention to. You know, that's that's the one that we're we're looking at. Yeah. Um, it, you you have to get so superficial and so generalized because of uh, how much is being crammed into that one person or that one office yep. uh, rather than it being spread throughout local contexts, millions of believers who have different theological and political views and allow to have that like I- exchange of, of diversity in what they're talking about, um, how does the church, you know, there, there are some, there's a contingent of believers, like, you know, church and state completely separate. We're not going to engage like, historically like the Anabaptist, uh, you know, denominations have just said, we're going to step out. Uh, that's not quite so true of like Neo Anabaptist, uh, a lot of modern um, Anabaptists don't do that, but there are some people that this, we're going to step out of politics altogether. Mm-hmm. On the other end of that, you have a lot of, uh, American evangelicalism is basically in a secular term synonymous with the Republican Party. Uh, how do we find that balance between being just a political system in terms of the the political machine and being a political system that is really just meaning polis in the terms of the community? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's a great question. It's a great way of putting it. Um Yeah. I mean, I think part of it goes back to having a fuller, robust political theology. Um, Not that it's all about like what we believe or like the things we think we can believe really good things and then act wrongly. But I do wish it was talked about more in church community contexts where it's not, again, like here's a voter guide (laughs) before the election or or that it was just like, we're going to have a Sunday school series. And and I've seen so many of these curriculums, books that are like, here's the 12 political issues show up and like, let's talk through the verses on both sides. But asking, I mean, this question of what is the nature of government and what is the, the relationship between the church and government is a lot of what's at stake theologically in what you just described, these different approaches to things. And so one thing is, I think we have to be more aware of both the tradition we come from. It's really shocking to me how many people in churches are in particular denominations that have a particular history and theology of the church and the state and have no awareness of it. But even apart from denominational differences, like there's so many better ways and more robust, exciting, creative ways that we could talk about what is political theology. So I'm even... I'm doing a class at my church in the fall for a few weeks, and I already know I'm not going to do exactly what people probably expect because they'll come expecting some of those things I just said. And one of the things I typically do if I'm at a church or I'm with, you know, a Christian college or a campus ministry is start with a short biblical theology of political life that is not focused so much on this question of the relationship between the state and the church, which is an important question, but isn't a question that is necessarily relevant to every generation of Christians. So we first start with just like, what is true in this like really broad sense? Like what is just an or a generally orthodox approach to this? And that means it's going to be more focused on our regular common life, like our neighborhoods and our seeking of flourishing of the vulnerable people in those neighborhoods. And so it really starts, I think, with a a theology that dignifies and values human work, that doesn't think that the end we are awaiting is an end without bodies or work or community, but an end in which all of those things are made new. 
And then it really requires practice. Like you can have those good ideas about things and not have really fleshed out what that means practically in your community if you're not involved in it. And I think a lot of Christians tend to think, oh, I'm very involved in my community. We do service at my church. We show up to a soup kitchen. We help with like a boys and girls club. And service is different than really being engaged in your community, being a full member of that community. One of the difficult things about this is like, you can't just serve people. You need to be served. There needs to be some reciprocity here. You need to build a relationship. Um, So it's going to require things like, I mean, I love showing up to vote in person in my neighborhood. The voting location is at a church that's like down the street from my house. So I see people in my neighborhood who I know. Um, And just that kind of act of saying, okay, it's not a big election year. There's not anything like juicy or sexy on the ballot. It's just the normal rhythm of my community and budget things and like, but but budget things that are so important or like local judges that don't matter to me very much. I'm probably not going to end up in a courtroom, but matter greatly to more vulnerable people in my community. So part of it is saying, you know, okay, once we have this larger theology of like the work that we do in our communities is important to God and it's something we will do in eternity. And then starting to say, okay, I don't need a voting guide in my church, but what I would love is a few weeks before a local election that's not exciting or sexy, the pastor says, hey, I'm not going to tell you how to vote in this, but let's talk about how economic questions, political questions that that shape our community matter to Christians. So like, remember that you can go vote. <laughs> we will help you get a ride if you can't. Um, and, and we just want to encourage you that this is a part of what it means to be a, a citizen. And one of my favorite lines that kind of sums this up is a line from the letter to Diognetus, which was an early Christian apologetic. I have my sister painted it on like a fancy, very like Pinterest Etsy looking wall, you know, sign on my wall that says it's from this, from the letter to Diognetus. And it's talking about Christians. There's like a funny line right before this where he's like, they share in all things. They take care of each other, but they don't share wives, which is just like a good note. They don't share wives. That's good. Um, But in a similar kind of vein, he says, As citizens, they share in all things with others and yet endure all things as foreigners, which to me is really like a good summary statement of what has been most of Christian doctrine on this question, which is we are involved in our communities. This is, you know, what the first conversation that God has with Abraham is you will be not only um, will you be blessed, but you will be a blessing to the nations. This is what is told to the people in exile in Jeremiah. This is what Jesus describes to the people during his first kind of active ministry in Luke. This is the description of the early church caring for others and um, within their community and outside their community. And yet you don't do that as if this is all there is, as if you have to do everything to make, you know, heaven on earth yourself. You endure the difficulties and the sufferings of this kind of political work with that end in mind. And I think if we combined those things, we have good, it's a normal part of our church rhythm. We don't just have a week where we talk about a theology of politics when we're teaching on anything. We find applications to our general larger community life and we offer people lower barriers to being involved in it. And I don't think any of that's a panacea. It will be hard and we will continue to be more often more shaped by things outside our church than things inside our church. But there's more opportunities, I think, if we thought of this as just this is a regular rhythm of the life of our church is teaching and practice around these kinds of things. Yeah. Do you feel like for American evangelicalism that there's sort of this paradox where um, there is a longing for political power? And, you know, we've seen that it's been there through decades, but I think we especially saw that with the rise of the Trump era. Uh, a a real longing for political power. You know, I can I can remember um, Pat Robertson writing a book um, 
I don't know if it's just called the Ten Commandments, but it was it was about the the Supreme Court, and the whole the whole book is about how liberal the Supreme Court is, and that you know we need to we need to you know, cut off the power of the Supreme Court. And you know, this was written in like the early two thousands, uh, and then you know you, now it's the exact opposite, and the only difference that's changed is is what um, political authority has more power within the the same the same power of the court the court's power hasn't changed the makeup of the court has changed uh so that it leans different politically so it's like okay no well, now this is politically beneficial i don't don't see a need to change anything um th- there's there's this this paradox of longing for political power uh but almost as a sense of like well we want we want the government to do to do the dirty work uh <laughs> because there's I, I get people that like well you know, the government doesn't need to do that. The church should be doing it. Right. Well, if, if you as the church are trying to elect, a, you know, elected officials, then shouldn't they be, the people that you're electing also be working for those same causes? So it, it's almost like there's a sense of like, well, we'll have the, well, you know, the verses on, well, Christians can't do this, but the government can, but yet we want Christians to be in charge of the government you know, how do we work out that that paradox and really find the flow of like, this is what the government is supposed to do. This is what the church is supposed to do and maintain that sort of messy intersectionality between the two. Yeah. 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 To be fair to folks trying to work this out, it is really hard. Um, and and that does well describe a lot of our conflicts when it comes to biblical interpretation is, is this a command or at least um, instructive for the church, for the government, who is this talking to? Um, Some things are more clear than others. Like in the Old Testament, there are laws given to Israel that are not given to other nations. Um, And those other nations are judged harshly by the prophets, but not for breaking Israel's laws. They're judged for breaking the Noahic covenant that is about how we treat other people. And so it, I mean, it reiterates in the Noahic covenant, how you treat people is based in, they are in the image of God. And so the nations in general are judged for how they treat foreigners, widows, and orphans, the most vulnerable people in their context, and honestly, in our context as well, for enslaving people, for exploiting people. And, and so they're not judged for like, you disobeyed the Sabbath. That wasn't a law for you. And so that doesn't apply. So some of that is is not actually that easy. We don't actually understand that very often, but it should be easier for us to say, okay, these are commands given to nations in general. We're a nation. Some of that really does directly apply. Um, the New Testament is trickier because this is like descriptions of the early church, both smaller communities than the communities that we live in. And so there's like a scale issue and also an assumption of redeemed, regenerate people versus a community that is not. And there is pretty sparse direct instruction about the kind of government that existed at the time or that exists now, certainly in the whole of scripture, especially in the New Testament. Um I think one of the difficulties is that it is true and good that we should see in scripture indications at the very least of how God intends human communities to flourish. So the nations are not given the specific laws Israel is given about the Jubilee or about kind of leaving the edges of your fields unharvested so that the poor can can take from it. And yet that description tells us that human communities, including even the people of God, will over time have wrongful, unjust accumulation of wealth in certain people and a lack in others. And there needs to be mechanisms to keep that from happening. Does that give us a blueprint for political life today? 
No, but it does tell us something that should be instructive in terms of what matters to us. When it comes to them, this question of like, okay, well, is that the church's job? Is that the government's job? Um, it, it both is an interpretive question of going, okay, this mechanism seems community wide. And it seems to be the kind of thing that the church both just doesn't have the power to do. And we might say shouldn't have the power to do. Um, it's not the church's job. Um, but then that also tells us that there are other people involved throughout the Old Testament, right? It's not just here are the laws and Israel must follow it. There are stories of people acting in particular acts of compassion and kindness to care for the vulnerable. So we have a precedent for individual or even community acts that are more charity than justice. Um, and so I, I don't have an easy answer for this other than to say that that's at the heart of a lot of our interpretive questions. But I think the two kind of ditches on either side of the road are either saying, well, the Bible really, if it's not talking about government, has nothing to say to government. So the Jubilee's out. We, we don't apply that at all. Or to say what, which often happened recently with the debate about student loan forgiveness was like the Jubilee is the answer. There's the blueprint. You are violating the Bible. Here you go. But those are both ditches that we want to avoid. I think the better kind of difficult path to be taking in between is saying, I do want scripture to shape absolutely everything about my, my communal life, my public life, the way that I, the, the kind of policies I think make a community flourish well. And yet the work of determining how that should look isn't as clear cut as this is what the Bible says. And so I should have humility and compassion for people who will think differently about it. Um, there are lines to that. Like there are bar like um, limits to that. <laughs> there are times when it's like, no, I really just think you're not taking scripture seriously. But if we're being honest, I think most of the time it is a question of implementation more than it is a question of, are we taking scripture seriously on this? And having some more humility and compassion would help us navigate that better. Yeah. Yeah. Cause no one really goes into, even if they use the verse as a proof text, no one goes into that thinking that their interpretation of that scripture is wrong. You know, there, it is based in like, I sincerely believe this is the correct interpretation of this scripture and how it should be applied. Yeah. Um, it's the tone and the, the whole tenor of the conversation and um, really the, the, the sense of like, well, it has to be this way. This is the only way without any allowance for any debate within the, you know, the Christian sphere. And it's like, well, if you don't believe this, then you're not Christian or you're not a real okay. Christian. You get that whole, you know, no, you know, true Scotsman fallacy. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we have, we have these arguments and I just, I just, I don't see a willingness to really talk about the issues in a way that's not just like, I'm right, you're wrong. And uh, that that's the end of it. And I don't I, I don't I don't I don't have an answer. And um, I think if you know, if, if the answers were easy, uh, you wouldn't have to write a book about it. <laughs> yeah. And sure. uh, and hopefully we'd be in a much better space. Uh, I, I want to move on. I want to talk about just you personally, because obviously you this is this has been your work. You know, you're getting a doctorate in political theology at Duke. Uh, you've now written two books on um, on this topic. Uh, what, or what point did you say, this is, this is what I want to do with my life? You know, <laughs> what made you interested, uh, in this topic and wanting to pursue it? Yeah. I mean, I knew first that I was just interested in writing on it in general when I was, um, kind of early in seminary. So, um, before seminary, I was in college at Liberty university, 
which if people are unfamiliar, um, both has this really tight history with the religious right, moral majority in American history. Jerry Falwell Sr., who was kind of the starter of the moral majority, was the founder and president of Liberty University. So unbeknownst to me when I started as a 17-year-old, um, I, I was at this really important place for that history. And then I graduated in 2016. And so my last two years of college, um, Jerry Falwell Jr., Falwell Sr.'s son, who was then the president after his death, um, became very involved in the 2016 election. He was one of the earliest um, evangelical supporters of Donald Trump, was on cable news a lot, was just kind of making public statements a lot. And so there was a lot of national media on campus. Um, Ted Cruz announced his candidacy on campus. Donald Trump was there a few times. Um, and Bernie Sanders came. Like there was just across the spectrum, politicians, media, it was kind of a lot. And so I got a front row seat to a lot of a lot of the dynamics that we have just spent the last few minutes talking about when it comes to the relationship between Christian theology, scripture and political life and felt disconcerted by a lot of it. Um, and I went to seminary and my first semester of seminary, the 2016 election was still happening. And so still was a really relevant conversation with a lot of my fellow students. And I was taking some spiritual formation classes and thought, I, I think I need to write this book about spiritual formation and political life because I'm reading all this stuff. I really wanted a book just to like hand to fellow students graduating with me who weren't going to read the hundreds of books that I read in preparation for that book. But I was like, if you're a pastor, I think you need to be thinking about this. Like, let me help you to the best of my ability. Um, and so I kind of initially thought that would just be it. Like I'm a writer fundamentally and I'll just, this is what's, this is where God has led me for now. Uh, but in the course of writing that first book, I started thinking, like, I think this might be forever. Like, I think this might be my job forever. And so when I started applying to PhD programs the year after my book came out, I really went in going, I need to find a place where I can specifically think about these questions. And so Duke has been perfect because I'm taking classes in political theory, in the literature department, in philosophy. And so I can both learn from all of that history and take really great theology classes. And really, when I was looking at PhD programs, I was thinking, I don't, I'd love to teach. I'd love to have an academic career. I'm also realistic about the possibility of that very much not happening potentially. Um, but I really went in going, that's kind of secondary. This academic career desire is really secondary. I went in thinking, if I'm going to do this for the rest of my life, and I think I am, I kind of think I have a thicker skin than some people to do it. And I have an interest in it. And I kind of think God is like directing this. I I'm going, I need more. I need to study more. I need to know more. I need to be exposed to wider traditions and readings and people. And so I really started my academic journey, just thinking like, if I get a job doing this, that's great. If I don't, and I get to serve the church with this knowledge, then that's, that's really what faithfulness would look like to me. Have you found in your time uh that you have changed theologically or politically because obviously you know there, there's a big difference between liberty and duke uh, yeah. between the two um you know have you found yourself shifting toward a more progressive direction if so why uh, what do you feel like you've if, if you have what have you retained of that you know liberty conservatism that you know you you saw something good in at some point yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, in some ways, my time at Liberty was like a normal college experience. Like you change your mind and you figure out what your parents believed that you don't believe anymore and what your youth pastor said that you have questions about. And um, and so I did do a little bit of a swing kind of early in Liberty days towards like maybe everything I grew up with was wrong. 
And I read a lot of um, some Marxist philosophers and thought like, maybe I'm just really far left. I had moderated out already by the time I went to seminary and sort of was was reevaluating a lot of things. But I will say my time at Duke just the last two years, I think, has also moderated me. I mean, I spent a lot of time in evangelical contexts and saw what was really wrong there. And I think a lot of it was really wrong. Um, Some things that happened in terms of the political sphere, in terms of gender questions were wrong. Like I really, I learned all of the habits there. Like I learned what I, to expect that really bothered me that I didn't think was biblical or faithful to God. And I sort of assumed naively that coming to Duke, which I des- I desired to come to not because I thought I was leaving behind evangelicalism or more conservative Christianity in terms of my theology. Uh, like I've always been pretty conservative. I feel increasingly conservative theologically. But I really picked going to Duke because I thought I just need a range of experiences. I need to learn from some other kinds of people. What I didn't expect was two years in feeling more conservative than when I started. I think because I spent so long only seeing the the, the ditch on one side of the road. And now I've spent a couple of years going, oh, there is a ditch on the other side. Like, I actually do think there are some problems over here. Um, and Duke is not the most progressive it can be among the more like mainline sort of affiliated seminaries. It's like the conservative one. So I think it's been a good, happy place for me to be. But I'm really thankful, actually, that I've had the range of experiences I've had because I think the temptation for a lot of people, and I've seen some of my peers and friends do this, I think the temptation is to learn really well the faults of the community that you're in, which is a gift to that community. It should be. But to completely fail to see that there might be faults elsewhere and to start to really have a grass is greener on the other side kind of mentality where you think, oh, everyone over here has bad motivations. And honestly, they're bad readers and thinkers, and they just kind of are sheep that follow whatever. And the other side, everyone is just brilliant and well-read, you know, and no, it's, it's the very similar social dynamics are true with what I experienced at Dallas seminary and what I experienced with MDiv students here at Duke. Like a lot of the same things can happen with just a different kind of political tenor. And I'm thankful for experiencing that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I also went to Liberty. I was an online student though. Did Uh, you? I I was class of 2012. So Mitt Romney was my commencement speaker. Nice. Um, you know, that was the whole year where all of a sudden evangelicals were like, no, Mormonism is fine. Yeah, right, it's, it's right, definitely right. part of evangelicalism. And uh, yeah, yeah. And then, you know, when I went into Liberty, that was the that was the liberal option. <laughs> you know, that was like it was Pensacola Christian College yeah, yeah. Liberty. Like that was the three options that were really presented sure. to me at the time, you know, knowing nothing about accreditation or you know, none of the history or anything. And that's just what, you know, what was presented to me. And, you know, my time at Liberty was fine. I don't, I don't have, I don't have any problems with it. Uh, It was really after I left that it was like, okay, um, I don't know how much this was going on behind the scenes. And then since then have moved, you know, quite a bit to the progressive side. Um, And, but yeah, you're, you're right. You, you, it is a gift to see, Everything that I believed, thought of, I, I've had to rework that and reevaluate it. And a lot of it has dropped off. I mean, you know, you can call that deconstruction. You can call that whatever it is. It's It's been torn down. It's been rebuilt. Some of it has mm-hmm. been completely demolished. Um, a lot for a lot of people of this generation. And I think COVID accelerated this. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people who were in the positions that, that you and I were both in, have stepped out of 
church life, have stepped out of the faith, uh, even broader than church life, completely because of them not the 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 inability to reconcile um, their the faith of their upbringing with what they believe now in terms of how to care for other people, how to care for creation, and all this, this vast this vast array yeah. of issues. Um, so as you're as you're if you're speaking to someone who is evangelical or whatever term you want to use, uh, people who have walked away from the type of Christian faith they grew up in, um, what advice do you have for them to sort of navigate that and say, you know, this, you know, the faith, the Christian faith is much bigger than just the small circle in which you you grew up in. Yeah. How do you how do you maintain that? And continue to be both theologically faithful to God and politically faithful to being a member of your community as you as you live out those convictions. Yeah, that's so important. Um, you know, I'll I'll tell you when I um, my first semester of seminary, I was um, learning Greek, which is just awful. And I was I just remember the morning after the 2016 election, I was sitting at a Starbucks studying Greek and just like like a lot of people, like just distraught, um, both, both because of the outcome of the election, but more so because I was watching people I really trusted say and do things that just seemed really counter to scripture, you know, counter to Christ's behavior and orientation towards vulnerable people. And, and I was like, I'm in my first year of studying to like work in the church. And I just like, don't know what that could look like. Like what church could I, I was at a church. I was working at a church that ended up being really hard, um, which is an understatement, but I just was thinking like, what do I do? This is, I'm at the beginning of this like huge program to try and learn how to do something that I'm not sure I believe in anymore. And, um, it's kind of a joke at Dallas seminary that you have to do so much work with acts one eight, um, the, like being my witnesses to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You have to write all these observations about it. You have to translate it. You have to like, you know, this verse so well. And so I was translating that verse just to like see how my Greek was and and see what I had learned so far. And I it suddenly struck me sitting in that coffee shop in Dallas, Texas in 2016, that when Jesus says that to his disciples, to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth, I am the ends of the earth. Like the disciples, Jesus could not have imagined Jesus in his, in his Godhead, like it would know this, but the disciples could not have imagined Dallas, Texas in 2016, me studying Greek. Like that's so far from the context in which this was originally spoken and the context in which the church started. And I'm not the center. Like that's, I'm so far from the center of this story that I am included in all of the ends of the earth. Um, Not one of the specific places mentioned, not one of the specific things in their mind, their idea of this amazing journey that they were beginning on. And it was strangely comforting in that moment to think, I have to learn an ancient language that no one speaks anymore in order to translate this text, that that's how far away from me it is in time and in the world. And that was really comforting to just be like, that's not the whole story of the Christian faith is what's happening here. Um, I think then another thing I would say, other than just recognizing that and kind of dwelling on that, I think there are other moments in scripture that are so culturally different from ours that they're helpful little like reminders of like, oh, wow, this is so far from me. And yet it's close. Like I'm grafted into this giant family. That's so wild. Um, But especially learning some of the history of even just American Christianity to say there is this incredible, robust history 
of social activism towards real justice in our own country, in our faith, in a pretty like conservative Protestantism, it's just in the black church. (laughs) There were some white people involved, but this is mostly the black church. And not to like colonize that or take over that history. In some sense, that history doesn't belong to me. But in another sense, that is the history of our country. Like that's American history. That's part of what the American story is. And so I would encourage people to spend some time with those folks, with people like Mariah Stewart or Frederick Douglass or um, Nat Turner or, you know, people that might make you really uncomfortable, but that have this long history of going to scripture and describing their work towards justice in American history in the terms of scripture and their reliance upon the Holy Spirit and their belief that God will come back and, and make all things new. And that's the kind of thing that I, I both want to say to people who think this whole thing is irredeemable is to say, like, look at what look at what it did in these communities, but also to say, while that history is not yours in some sense, and you should learn the history of the white churches that that both were often very pro-slavery, that resisted um, desegregation, like learn that history, lament that history. It's also not the whole history. And it's not just that that's the Christian history and the rest of it is secular, that the rest of that is really deeply highest faithful Christian history. And that should be both a reminder that the the Christian story is larger than just your story, but also a reminder that if you're looking for Christian faithfulness today, you're probably not going to find it in the powerful people. You're going to find it in the marginalized people fighting for justice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, last question, and then I will, I'll let you go. Uh, and, and this is going to be just as hard as all the other questions. Uh, you know, we are moving into the 2024 election cycle. Um, what do you see being the future of evangelical Christianity's relationship with politics? Ooh, it's really <laughs> hard. Um, what makes it so hard is that evangelicalism is so big and wily and like not well defined. <laughs> um, and so I, I do, if I'm thinking about just the immediate future elections, I do think we're going to see increasing diversity, but also that means increasing conflict. Um, there's always been conflict. There's some new books even that have really highlighted the diversity of political engagement among evangelicals, but evangelicals that got kind of pushed out of the main evangelical institutions. Um, I think we're going to continue to see diversity, but a lot of that leading to conflict, especially generational conflict. Um, And that's where I am focusing a lot of my energy, even in my own church right now, is saying, I don't really care about whatever amorphous big thing evangelicalism is. And some institutions I think are really good. Some of them could die. That's fine. I'm really committed to evangelical churches that are just trying to like serve their communities and preach the gospel and interpret scripture. And when I think about what those communities need to withstand what it's going to look like politically over the next few elections, I think it's intergenerational relationships, strengthening those, building trust, interpreting scripture together. And just to be honest, I think especially among women, um, the changes that have happened over the last few generations in terms of what the regular life of women looks like in America is greater than it is for men. There are big generational changes in general, but it's the divide between just one generation of like most women stayed home with kids and didn't have a career versus most women do not get married a lot later are less likely to have kids more likely to have a career it's that generational divide is huge and i think increasingly women are politically engaged um white evangelical women in particular are very politically engaged i think that that intergenerational conflict will be potentially devastating in a lot of churches and you didn't ask for this part but i think that that's where a lot of our focus needs to be is just going 
look, I might think you are really wrong politically. I also think you're my brother or sister in Christ. And I've got to find a way to build a close relationship with you. Not because the political stuff isn't important, but because actually, because I think it's important, we need to have a stronger relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, Caitlin, thank you for taking time out of your day to be on the podcast. Again, the book is The Ballot in the Bible. Uh, it comes out, let me read the back of this here because it's an advanced copy. It comes out on the 22nd. So yep. here in just a couple of weeks, you have uh, you have big things planned for the for the book launch. I'm just gonna have a little party here. Yeah, I don't know. We um we're doing a Baker Bookhouse virtual event a few weeks after that, but on the actual day, I think we'll do a little a little Durham local party. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thank you for your time. I I can't wait to see this book uh, out on shelves and into people's hands because it's definitely. There's there's so much going around. There's 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 so much yelling and shouting, and it, it's great just to see someone a bit calmer <laughs> in tone. Uh, that that really I think kind of brings not necessarily a different perspective, but a, a yeah a different perspective to it. Uh, that's going to help you uh, as a reader really try to get out of the culture war stuff and to really think deeply about what your Christian faith and your biblical formation is going to be in terms of how it relates to politics. So again, Caitlin, thank you. Mm, Thank you, Josh. 